Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio Wednesdays at 5pm for Brainwaves, Melbourne's drive-time radio show. Giving voice to people with mental illness. One in five have a mental illness, but five in five can enjoy this great program featuring heartwarming stories, great information and some laughs as well. Find us at 3CR. 855 on your AM dial. Sponsored by Mental Illness Fellowship of Victoria. Welcome listeners, you're listening to 3CR, 855am. Today I'm talking to Morgan Carpenter, an intersex activist and researcher. Morgan is president of Organisation Intersex International Australia. We're a volunteer-run charitable organisation by and for people born with intersex variations. I think the best starting point to talk about this issue is is to say that, um, you know, first and foremost... uh, um, what, what intersex, intersex people share in common with each other is, is that we're born with atypical sex characteristics. Um, and those atypical sex characteristics are stigmatized uh, and seen as problematic uh, by both medicine and society. Because we're not talking about you know, people who have necessarily non-binary gender identities or, or any other specific form of identity. They really understand that people haven't got a very clear idea. So I'm very glad of the opportunity to talk about what intersex is and to try and help people understand that what intersex people share in common is not a particular gender nor a particular gender trajectory or history. But what we share is an experience of being born with stigmatized biological sex characteristics. Um, and those, the impact of that um, can affect us the whole of our lives because of the kinds of medical treatment and life experiences that we have because of our bodies, because of the way our bodies don't meet norms for men or women. Indeed, and I understand um, forced surgical intervention of intersex children is a human rights issue you're quite passionate about. Um, is it still fairly common practice? Um, it is, unfortunately. Um, we, um, we pay quite close attention to what um, clinicians tell us, both in person and also in um, in medical documents, in, in medical journals. Uh, and we know that this year um, the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne still talks about um, routinely offering um, genital reconstruction surgeries in the case of infants born with intersex variation called TAH. That must be really um, upsetting to, to have heard about considering they just started up their, um, there was like a $6 million transgender children's ward opened up, but then this lack of understanding around intersex experience. Well, I think they're seeing, intersex and trans issues are seen quite differently. Um, I, I think, um, I mean, both, both intersex people and trans people are pathologized. We're seen as having something wrong with us from, mm. from a medical perspective seen as disordered um, but the but the rationales are quite different um, in in the case of trans kids what is being um, what is considered to be the disorder is it's no longer called a disorder but it still appears in the diagnostic and statistical manual of, of 
of mental disorders is gender dysphoria. So it's where they where they where their gender experience differs from their assigned sex mm. at birth. Mm. But with intersex people, it, it's our physicality that's seen as disordered, and doctors call that a disorder of sex development. Um, so the standard medical protocols are quite different. Um, in terms of what, what doctors say about the birth of an intersex child, they say that um, medical intervention to make make sure that boys can pee standing up and make sure that girls don't have clitorises that are too big. The rationales for that include things like minimizing family concern and distress and mitigating the risk of social isolation. Uh, even in Victoria, it includes rationales like improving marriage prospects. Um, so, so they're rationales for, for making people's bodies look like the sex we're assigned at birth. But those same protocols, those same standards are never applied to trans kids because they're, you know, because they're seen as their, their mind or their brain is, 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 um, is being pathologized. It's, it's a really interesting way that doctors kind of approach the, the intersex I don't know, the physicality in that they are protecting the society rather than the individual. Um, how does your organisation tackle that in terms of supporting somebody if they contacted you for emotional support? Or, or Yeah, um, that's a really great question. I mean, there's a few issues there. I mean, I think the first one is that there is pretty much widespread incomprehension about what intersex is. Uh, and that's something that we we do try to address. But but I mean, you're, you're a community radio station. We're, we're a, a community organisation, and we're all volunteers. And I think you are as well. So, you know, we're both well aware of the um, the constraints that that imposes on us. Um, but in terms of the kind of support that we provide, I mean, um, we, we spend a lot of time talking with parents and families and also with with um with adults people with intersex variations mm. ourselves that there are there are huge support needs i mean pa- parents need to have information that can help to see their to, to help them to accept their child as they are ultimately mm, obviously rather than make... the earlier the better the intervention is well or even before they're born because a lot of parents find out that they have an infant with intersex variation prenatally because mm-hmm. because many intersex variations are genetic and testable. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, what, what one of the key issues that concerns us is, is, is that um, both as uh, children, as, uh, both parents, and also, you know, p- variations or intersex traits are, are typically diagnosed by a doctor. Mm. And um, parents may find out prenatally at birth or during the childhood of a person with an intersex trait. Or an intersex person may find out later on in life, say as an adolescent or an adult. Um, and typically, the, the, the diagnosis is... is presented as a disorder, as something that's wrong with the person. And it can take us some time to, to work out, well, you know, sometimes what's wrong is, is uh, what's, sometimes what's wrong is social expectations of what is normal, mm. really. And, and I guess this is what we share in common with LGB and, and trans populations. That, you know, the LGBT movement is about self-acceptance, accepting people as we are. And that's really a, a, a fundamental 
um, tenet of the intersex movement as well. Mm. Um, and what we're trying to do is, is not really say that... Um, well, there's a couple of things about the intersex movement I think are kind of useful to know. I mean, the intersex movement is fundamentally about autonomy and people being able to make decisions by ourselves mm. with full information. Yeah. So it, we're about... Um, Ultimately, we're about self-acceptance, and like the LGBT movement, about people accepting ourselves, how we are, and about society accepting us for who we are, how we are, however we want, however we want to be. Mm. Um, so we're not really anti-surgery, and this is something that is that we're criticised for by some clinicians. We're, we're, we're really pro-consent. Mm. Yeah, but that's and, and difficult because that, an infant can't give consent. No, an infant can't give consent. And parents often aren't given the opportunity to to understand um, the um, the possible life journeys that their child might go on, uh, and and we know that parents are vulnerable, and and if a situation is presented as you know this surgery, you know, well, parents may be presented with a situation where 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 their kid has, for example, ambiguous genitalia, and and the doctors will make a suggestion based upon. Uh, blood tests and and uh, chromosomal tests and other tests just just to kind of try and make a best guess about what sex that person will Mm. best be raised as and how they will identify as an adult but that's still guesswork yeah um and we can never be 100 percent sure even in the cases of people who are not intersex um but moreover than this it's not just a case of possibly the assignment might be wrong The, the, the issue of consent is more fundamental than that because we know that when clinicians themselves talk to our parliamentarians what they tell our parliamentarians is that they have particular concern about sexual function and sensation after surgical interventions so we know that it can it can damage capacity for intimacy mm. uh, it can it can damage all sorts of um, capacities for for long-term loving relationships well, there's a bit of an irony that the that, that marriage prospects are used as a rationale for the surgical intervention. Yeah, normal. Yeah, <laughs> and they can yeah destroy the intimacy within that very same relationship. That's awful. Well, there's, there's another um, connection there with LGBT populations because because the rationale is is to, is to make people's bodies acceptable for conventional heterosexual intercourse, mm. and it's more the more the um, the capacity for the act itself rather than any kind of sensation or pleasure that people might gain from that. It's so, a very kind of old-fashioned way of looking at sex and the body. So we need a, a paradigm shift towards, you know, uh, focus on pleasure rather than, I don't know, the old in out. <laughs> like, it's such an antiquated idea. I, yeah, I can't believe well, I think, it. I think that's true, yeah. I, th- I think a focus on pleasure would make a huge difference. I think it would mean that we would be concerned far more about about people being okay with themselves, with their bodies, uh, and maximizing the potential for, um, for future enjoyment of people's own bodies. If somebody was, say they had a, a surgical complication as a result of something that um, was unconsensually given to them at birth, is, is there um, a, you know, plastic surgery that they can undergo that's covered by Medicare to reclaim any of any damage that might be done? Um, well, no, not really. Um, this applies to me because because I was diagnosed as an adult, and, and um, 
the first thing that happened was that I went on to testosterone. And, and then a year later, um, I had the first of what became four surgeries in four months. Wow. Um, and, and that was a very difficult, challenging time in my life and left me with quite severe depression as well as um, physical health issues. I'm so sorry. Um, and I've actually had as, probably as many surgeries since. But, but the ones that you would call um, reparative, you know, and trying to deal with the consequences of the early surgeries, I mean, there are often ones where I've had to pay for, for the um, treatment myself. That's, um, because I think it's cosmetic or, or um, non-essential. <laughs> That's uh, really upsetting to hear. I'm so sorry. Um, I, did... Who, um, members and, and, and friends who, who are in the same situation today. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not going away. Um, I mean, in, in a sense, I mean, if, if the trans movement... Well, I mean, we join with the trans movement and say that, you know, people should have access to surgeries to help to affirm their gender and to help deal with the consequences of past treatment. But, but, but um, one of the issues that isn't addressed there is, is, is what we know about how people tend to avoid medical treatment because mm. of early negative experiences. Ah, that that makes a lot of sense. So, um, yeah, the tentative to um, to get reparative surgery because of the damage it's already done. There's certainly evidence for that, and we've seen some papers coming out of clinics in London that, that detail this quite significantly. And those same clinics in London also talk about uh, what they've even called like a schism between paediatric uh, medicine and adolescent and adult medicine because of the consequences of early medical treatment. Sounds quite interesting, because um, you mentioned you were diagnosed as an adult, so that must have been quite a complex experience. Um, yeah, indeed, it, it, it was. Uh, and it, it wasn't just an issue for me, having my identity questioned, it also brought my partner's identity into question. Oh, wow, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, and what's in, what, but what we have to remember about it is, is that I went to the doctor with a physical health issue and, and, and then blood tests. And, and, and then it, for, for things like blood tests to, to, to bring your identity into question, it's it, it, it quite... Um, Would have been quite a shock to the system. Surprising yeah, thing. absolutely. Do you have a referral to a psychologist as part of that process? No, I should have had. <laughs> oh, gosh, that seems really I, negligent. <laughs> Um, I don't know if it's negligent. I mean, I, I, now looking back on it, it seems completely wrong. But um, I guess that's the way things were. It was. See, is it, this is a, this is the, the fundamental issue. You know, intersex variations are treated as physical disorders, mm. um, and, and the mental health consequences of treatment uh, and the decision making about what treatment is right for the individual. Okay. Yep. You know th th those issues need consideration, uh, and you know I, I did see a psychologist uh, and a psychiatrist, and I, I went through about four or five different mental health practitioners trying to find a good one. And after the surgeries, and I and, I, and really I, I needed them beforehand, and I would have had a very different kind of experience. You know, I, I needed support before the surgeries rather than after to yeah. help me make good decisions. Yeah. 
Um, And ideally that would have been peer support as well as perhaps a psychologist. Um, But after the surgeries, I needed needed help because I had quite a severe depression. Mm. So, um, and that was a response. I was reactive depression. So it's because of the experience I had of medical treatment. Mm, Totally Um, preventable. So, yeah, so if we'd had that referral to a peer support service when you had that diagnosis, you might not have had to have gone through that depression at all. Yeah, and one of the key issues here is that doctors tend never to use the word intersex. So if you don't know the word, you haven't really got a way of describing the experience. Really? So they they just they just give you your specific intersex uh, kind of variation. Variation. Yeah. Okay. that's kind of very neoliberal. It kind of individualizes the experience to an extent that means that you, you know, people are often told that there's nobody else like you, or this is a very rare occurrence, or, or you know, maybe only a few people in the country with the same kinds of um, specific variation. And that's quite, um, that's quite difficult to handle. It's, it's quite alienating. It's like, and it can make people feel like a freak. You know, rather than feel like a member of a community of people with similar kinds of... Yeah, you've had a little bit of, of an experience of poor mental health as a result of your, as you termed it, diagnosis. Um, is that common for intersex experience? Um, the evidence says that it is. I mean, we know this from from the kinds of peer support that we offer. There are not just consequences for physical health and for intimacy. Um, we, we know that there are consequences also for depression, anxiety, trauma. And the, the evidence says, it was a German study a couple of years old, that says that the prevalence of self-harming behavior um, is, is comparable to that in women with a history of sexual or physical abuse. Um, and we've also completed recently um, a, a community survey of Australians born with atypical sex characteristics uh, and that shows also very high levels of um, self-harming behavior, suicidal ideation. And, and really, it all, it, it, the rationales, I mean, the reasons for, for, for poor mental health lie, lie in the kinds of treatment people have experienced mm. and the consequences of that treatment. And some of that is medical. Some of it also is social. You know, we've also seen media coverage of people like the, um, the famous South African athlete, Casa Semenya. I don't know if you recall this. Mm. But whenever whenever there's a story like stories on Castasimania, that there's quite a lot of quite titillating coverage in the media about what what their bodies look like. Uh, um, do, does your organisation uh, lobby with any medical groups at all, or have a view to make more connections with the clinician base? Oh yes, of course we do. Um, yeah, uh, we, we we have a dialogue with um, with with a number of different clinicians uh, over the years. Um, uh, and including a, a couple of clinician bodies as well. Um, we also talk with um, governments and health departments and, and other institutions, human rights institutions as well, because the treatment of medical treatment of, of um, treatment of intersex infants and children is, is a human rights issue. Mm. The kinds of treatments that people experience are, are the kinds of experiences intersex girls experience, in particular, are prohibited in non-intersex girls. You know, in a, in a non-intersex girl reducing the size of their clitoris to call female genital mutilation. Mm, yeah. Yep. So, so it's a human rights issue. Mm. Um, 
and, and increasingly it's being recognized as, as a human rights issue by by bodies like the UN and also the World Health Organization. So, so I'm hopeful that at some point we'll see some change. Um, uh, but, but, you know, talking with you today is a really great way of just trying to help, you know, raise people's awareness about the issue and, and, and make and create a more realistic understanding of what intersex means. And that's a really vital step in, um, in, in creating change in a more accepting environment for us. Yeah, thank you so much. It, it it really does feel overwhelming sometimes when you. It's the same when you're advocating for mental health issues when it feels like the majority has a a really poor understanding of the issues. So thank you for having the resilience to to keep talking about it. Ah, uh, hey, well, thank you for having me on the program. And and yeah, I mean the parallels with with uh, mental illness and mental disability are, are profound, really, in terms of lack of understanding and trying to trying to live, a, you know, a healthy life. So in that sense, what can the layperson do as an ally in their everyday life to make the world a more tolerant place for intersex people? Well, that's a really lovely question. Thank you. I mean, I think that um, finding out more about the issues is a really good first step. And, and visiting the OII Australia website, oii.org.au. Um, and we have a sister organization as well called the AIS Support Group Australia, and they're also worth uh, visiting to read, to read what they say about uh, particularly an intersex variation called AIS. Um, yeah, but there are other ways in which you can support people as well, and that, that's to um, talk about, yeah, to, to acknowledge that the bodies aren't all typically male or female, and think about the consequences of that in, in, in your work lives, in your home lives, when when you or, or when family members have babies. You know, it, it, it's, diversity is normal, and, and trying to help, help people understand that diversity is normal and, and is not something to be ashamed of or afraid of. Um, that's one of, the, one of the best things that people can, can try and do to help promote a better understanding. Fantastic. Um, I, I was going to mention too, I, I read a book when I was younger um, by Jeffrey Eugenides, um, Middlesex. Have you heard of it? I have some slightly mixed feelings about it. I, th- I think in, in many ways it's, it's a lovely book. We're, 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 it's very literary. It's very readable. Clearly, Jeffrey Eugenides did a lot of research. What a lot of people struggle with is the way that the um, intersex variation mm-hmm. is kind of... Um, portrayed as, as a product of incest. It'd be like saying it's like bad karma, and it, and it would be a bit like a bit the same as saying that, you know, an experience of schizophrenia is because your parents committed, or your grandparents committed incest. Mm. It, it's very deterministic, and, it, and it's, it's, um, there's no evidence to support it, as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. Now, there, are, there are some good portrayals of intersex as well. I mean, there's, there's a really good book um, called Golden Boy, um, and there's also a book called um, None of the Above by I.W. Gregorio. Uh, and that's kind of for children. That's for young, young adults, really. Um, and there's also a TV series. Do you know MTV have a TV series now with an insect character? No, that's fantastic. I hadn't, I hadn't heard of that. What's it called? It's called Faking It. Faking It, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can take that how you will. I think it's... it's <laughs> um, People can get in touch through our website or we've got a Facebook page, Twitter feed. Um, we've also got like a, a, a private Facebook group that people can join. 
um, to get support as well. And there are a number of, um, you know, adults with insects variations and also parents involved in that group. And it's a good way of chatting people and meeting other people with the same kinds of life experience. Fantastic, because um, peer support is, is one of the best forms of, of mental health support that's out there. Um, oh, completely. That might be a, a nice point to finish up on. Thank you so much for the chance to talk and, uh, and, and, and to help explain a bit about what intersex is like. Really. Oh, no, thank you so much for being patient with, um, with my ignorance. That's about it for today. You can listen to podcasts of our show at 3cr.org.au and on iTunes. Send us feedback or your thoughts or just get in contact, especially if you have a story, suggestions or topic you'd like to share. Email us at brainwaves at mifellowship.org. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune into 3CR next Wednesday at 5pm for another episode of Brainwaves. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.